October, my brother and I left Ohio. We were driving to California. We got into Dallas on a Thursday night. Friday morning, while I'm eating eggs and drinking coffee, I get a good job. I mean, it's, you know, all these people are supposedly out of work. I'm not in town a half a day, and I've got a job. It just, everything clicked. It's as if I was meant to be here. Welcome. Welcome, everybody. This is How Have You Not Seen This? Welcome. A comedy film podcast Mm -hmm. by a husband. That's me, Daniel. Hey. And a wife. That's me, Tracy. There you go. Hey. (laughs) Nicely done. And, And we're all about showing the other person, the other person a you know movie that they've never seen before i don't know why i just all of a sudden became an idiot i was doing really well you were doing so good it's been a long day i guess it's been a long day and we Mm -hmm. missed a week and i feel like i'm out of practice it's okay um shake the cobwebs off we will and our producer is currently uh chewing a moose antler and it's very loud it's real loud so we apologize um she again is not doing her job and um she's drastically overpaid i mean it's it's embarrassing i don't even know how she negotiates these raises every year but she's so good i'm really excited i'm really excited about this week's episode so i'm Mm -hmm. super annoyed that she's making so much noise because i really like maybe we can just sell it as asmr yep Mm -hmm. like let's all just listen for a second She's insane. <laughs> yeah, she's insane. Yeah, well, you know, I do what I can. No, I meant the dog, but... Oh, yeah. well, anyway. <laughs> yeah, I meant the dog. I'm, oh, 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 oh. I'm a little insane. It's okay. Pick yourself up. Uh, yeah, so I'm so... I'm like, I'm so excited. Uh, this is Daniel's week, and he picked such a good movie mm-hmm. that i'm almost like well fuck it we have to end the podcast because i'll never be able yep. to find anything that will be this, we're done goodbye this uh special this is the series finale yeah we should have told no. you earlier <laughs> no it's not we we're, do we're fine. we do appreciate a little little pod a little pod keeping pod keeping um pod keeping we do appreciate y'all um putting up with our little bout of um every other week um School is uh, school and, you know, professors, it's, as Daniel says, it's like having, you know, four or five bosses and each of them does not give a shit what the other one yeah. wants you to do. So I had two huge exams, blah, blah, blah. Podcast has to come last. Yeah. Which makes me sad, but we're back. Yeah, we're back. And it's, you know, happy President's Day. Yep. Um, we're recording this on Valentine's Day. Yep. So this is what we're, this is this is our show of love mm-hmm. to you. Yep, you're welcome. The listener. Yeah. So happy Valentine's Day. Happy. In the past. And happy President's Day today. Yeah, happy Valentine's Day, as mm-hmm. they say on uh, 30 on Rock Big and Big Mouth. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's the time of the Valen. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and happy President's Day. Happy President's Day. Why don't we, let's do for President's Day, get ourselves a fucking new president. Mm-hmm. Let's make that our goal for President's Day for this year. Okay, it's, it's already like the morning. It's going to be a busy day then. <sighs> we need a new president. Yeah, working on it. 
Okay. Anyway, so this week we are talking about a first for the show, a documentary. Don't turn this off. I yeah, promise it's super it's good. It. it is 1988's The Thin Blue Line, directed by Errol Morris. Yes. And it, uh, I had seen this movie before, and Tracy had not. It was new to her, and she loved it. I'm not ashamed to say. Not putting words in her mouth. Nope. She loved it. Absolutely fucking went over the moon for it. Yeah. Now, the reason is... I think we all know. No, we don't know because you don't know anything yeah. about this movie. Let me tell you real quick. I'll tell them real quick, and then you can tell them why the, why you loved it so much. Well, why don't you? Why don't I tell you why I haven't seen it? Yes. How have you not seen this? Uh, well, I was eleven. Yeah, that's when true. it came out. Yeah. And so, unlike some of our listeners, not into like documentaries at that young an age. Mm-hmm. Um, I would hazard to guess that most sixth graders are not into documentaries. Well, I think we know some interesting people. Probably. So not so much into documentaries. I had, I did, I'm going to be totally honest. I had absolutely no idea that this movie even existed. I know what the thin blue line is in popular culture, but I didn't know it as a film title. I didn't know the only thing he kept saying the thin blue and I'm like the thin red line. And he's like, no. And I'm like, all right, I don't know what you're talking about. Um, But then he was like, it's a true crime documentary. And I lit up like the, fucking sun fireworks neon the sparkle (laughs) stars three words movie first syllable richard burton the pinball machine at binions there it is there it is pinball pinball machine at binions binions yes Mm -hmm. i lit up like the pinball machine at binions angie dickinson could suck the sorrow off a recent widow she had my trouser snake buried tonsil depth when a heroin crazed Brian Denny burst into my trailer and punched me right in the solar plexus. I ejaculated my central nervous system and she lit up like a pinball machine at Binion's. I don't even know what the fuck he's talking about. Redskins versus Cowboys, catch it. Suck my knob, policewoman. Um... And so, true crime documentary, hi, I am a murderino and a squatterino and a total true crime addict. Junkie aficionado. Junkie. Hey, buddy. That's Hercules. That's... I know, buddy. Hello. The cat actually says hello, which freaks me out. Yeah. Um, So, anyway, now Daniel's going to talk. We're going to have... This is going to be a little different. Yeah. And don't don't be scared. Yeah, because the the cool thing is since we've never talked about a documentary before, we've never been in the position where we get to talk about not only the movie as movie, but the real life events that it chronicles and the real world effects that it had. Yeah. You know, this this movie had effects. It changed the course of people's lives. Yeah. In in a fascinating way. So, uh, let me tell you real quick about what it's about. Um, and just kind of give you all a heads up, uh, just a big picture first. And I don't know anything because you wouldn't let me Google and it's making me crazy. I know it's been pretty great the past couple of hours. Um, so anyway, the thin blue line directed by Errol Morris came out in 1988, August of 1988. It made like no money, um, because it was a tough era for documentaries, especially theatrically. And it was, uh, not marketed well, it was also like not a lot of theaters. The distributors were Miramax, headed oh. by Bob and Harvey Weinstein. And if you remember from you know being alive, Harvey Weinstein is a a, a rapist and a piece of shit. So Harvey Weinstein, fuck you. Yeah, fuck you, dude. Um. So more importantly, fuck your 
fucking female attorney who said Mm -hmm. that she would just never put herself in a position to be assaulted. Fuck you. Fuck Harvey Weinstein. I hope that you both rot in hell. Yeah. Moving on. So anyway, yes. So The Thin Blue Line is a documentary by Errol Morris about the case of Randall Adams. Randall Adams was a man who was in prison uh, in Texas. Uh, and he is, his story about his imprisonment forms the basis of the documentary. He was arrested and tried and convicted for the murder of a police officer in 1976. As the story that the police had was that Randall was traveling with uh, a compatriot and they were pulled over one night by the cops for just a routine stop. Their, their headlights were off. And then the cop approached the driver's door and uh, Randall Adams shot him and then drove off. The only trouble is Randall Adams maintained his innocence throughout this entire ordeal and had alibis. And there was no physical evidence tying him to the crime. Nothing but the hearsay of witnesses and the guy who was with Adams that we'll get into. Adams was imprisoned, Errol Morse believed, wrongly. And so the documentary is about what Morris views as the miscarriage of justice and the wrongful imprisonment of Randall Adams, who maintains his innocence throughout. And the documentary also talks about who it thinks the real killer is, which is the guy who was with Adams. It also shows the garbage that is Dallas County. Yeah. And the garbage that is the cops in the 70s there. Oh, my God. It's... It's, it's, it's disgusting what they did, and we see it now. Mm-hmm. I'm just, honestly, I was uh, I was somewhat relieved to see that it was Dallas County, mm-hmm. uh, because uh, we all know how I feel about that place. Not a fan. Um, it's pure evil. Not a fan. Nothing good happens there ever. Yeah. And so it makes sense to me. I was like, well, yes, of course this yeah. would happen in Dallas because it is the worst place in Texas. Yeah. So uh, the documentary is is set in and around uh, the, da- the Dallas area uh, and interviews the police who, uh, who were involved in this investigation and uh, the judge who presided over the trial. It interviews the lawyers who tried to defend Adams. It also interviews uh, the man who Adams has spent that day with, he just met that day, who was named David Harris. And the documentary makes a pretty convincing case that David Harris was the actual killer of the police officer uh, Wood. 100%. And that Randall Adams was innocent. And so it is, in, and it does so in like a really amazing way. It like lays out the evidence in a really cool way, but it's also a very well-made movie, like aesthetically. Yes. It is a really great true crime story. It's a mystery. You know, going back to the thing I mentioned a few minutes ago, the marketing, it was actually a challenge because this was, of course, the late 80s. So this was well before our modern, the pop culture moment that true crime has been having for the past, you know, five to 10 years or so. Like true crime is, is of course, been very, very popular for, forever. forever. But there's no denying that things like serial and making a murderer and shows like that have made it much more popular. Um, the rise of my favorite murder, your favorite show, which launched my girls, in like, which launched in 2014. You know, like it's it's always been. There's always been a, a people have always been a, had a fascination with it, but it is much bigger and sharper now. I think 2014. Yeah, it was 2016. Oh, was it 16? Yeah. Sorry, I think it's it's definitely uh, it was tough for them to kind of get the word out. So one of the things that Miramax did was they pushed the movie. And didn't really use the word documentary at all. Like, even on the poster, 
Like they just kind of portrayed it as like a like a whodunit or a a, a new kind of film mystery. Um, oh dear. Yeah, and it was, it, and there were they actually had wound up having some some negative consequences for. I imagine so. For the movie and for its reception and the way it was viewed by some in the industry at the time. So, but it, it made Errol Morris's career. Errol Morris, the director, had made a couple of documentaries before this. Um, this was his third movie, but it hit in such a way that it really elevated him and, and sent him to the next level. And since then, he's been making more movies and he's done writing and stuff. I think one of the reasons you might have recognized his name the other day, he also directed the show that we saw on Netflix a couple years ago, Wormwood. Okay. That's why you recognize his name. That's a fucking amazing which is show, which doc- is also real. Exactly. It's a documentary and it, it uses a lot of reenactments and the reenactments star some famous people like uh, Peter Sarsgaard. So... Yeah, that's why you probably recognize his name. He's amazing. So yeah, The Thin Blue Line is about the wrongful imprisonment of Randall Adams. Yes. And you loved it. I was... (laughs) You were riveted the whole time. I was bonkers. Mm -hmm. And he kept saying... I mean, I was bonkers. Like, I would yell at the television a lot. Mm -hmm. I would yell at the at him a lot you did i took a lot of notes um you also showed me your notes during the movie yeah i would like point at words in the notes and Mm -hmm. be like see and he's like yeah no i'm watching like you wrote psychopath three lines tall and you're like he's a psychopath i'm like i know he's a psycho we're gonna get to it i wrote yeah yeah (laughs) i um i thought um i mean i don't know how you went i feel mm, i wish we had karen or or i wish we had karen here um, to do like the recap because I want to tell the story. I can do that. I have a recap for right here. Like you mean like the, the crime? Yeah, I yes. want a recap of the crime. I can do that right here. Yes. Okay. Okay. So November twenty eighth, nineteen seventy six. Robert Wood and Teresa Turco. By the way, right now I'm reading from a column that Errol Morris wrote in two thousand and eight for the New York Times. So I'm going to be quoting heavily from this. So this is his writing. Uh, anyway, November twenty eighth, nineteen seventy six. Robert Wood and Teresa Turco, two Dallas police officers, had stopped at a Burger King on Hampton Road in a desolate area west of the city. Wood was driving. Turco was in the passenger seat with the milkshake she'd ordered. As they were about to pull out of the parking lot, they saw a blue car heading south, headlights off. They pulled out, turned on their red flashing police lights, and directed the car to pull over. The intention was to issue a warning on a routine traffic stop. You're driving without headlights. Please turn your lights on. Yep. There is disagreement about what happened next. Mm -hmm. Turco, the female officer, claims that she and Wood got out of the patrol car more or less at the same time. Being a routine traffic stop, according to police procedure, Wood should walk up to the driver's side of the car and Turco should position herself to the rear of the vehicle, recording the license plate number and any other relevant details. Wood's version of what happened is unknowable because he walked up to the driver's side of the vehicle and was shot five times. The car sped off into the distance. Wood was dead at the scene. A crime scene diagram prepared by investigating officers suggests that Turco was not being entirely truthful. The telling detail was the location of where her milkshake landed, 14 feet from the door of the police cruiser. And then uh, it goes on to say that uh, Daryl Morris talked to Teresa Turco herself but wasn't able to actually get her on film. So they, they realized that instead of her getting out of the car with her partner to actually follow procedure, she didn't do that. And because that was not able to react in time, so... She was sitting in the passenger seat of the police car when she saw the shooting happen. In a panic, she chucked her milkshake out the window. It landed 14 feet away. She runs out of the cop car. But by the time she gets up to where it's happened, the car's already sped off. She fires. She fires. Hits nothing. Hits nothing. 
she then she has not followed procedure and she in her immediate after the fact testimony she gets the make and model info wrong Mm -hmm. she gets the color right blue but she gets the car make and model wrong she also says there was one driver one Mm -hmm. person in the car Mm -hmm. who had kind of a furry collar on his coat and then she is pulled into an internal affairs investigation for a couple of weeks yep and then after that at the time of the trial when by the time they have arrested randall adams she says there were two men in the car, not one, and that the driver had bushy hair, not a fur-lined coat. And she implicates Randall Adams. And she gets the car right. Yeah, and then she gets the car make and model right. And she implicates Randall Adams Isn't as the killer. Isn't that crazy that that happened? That she was going to be investigated mm-hmm. and then all of a sudden, oh, wait, now you're our perfect witness. What? Yeah. yeah. So uh, that's that's kind of the... That's that's where the mystery starts to... To come together and break apart because the official statement by the by the surviving officer of what happened after the fact did not reconcile with her testimony in court uh, and the story she gave later under oath. And Randall Adams had been uh, he was uh, just kind of a not drifter per se, but, but no, no, uh, no, no, no. But kind of, he, he and his brother were traveling through town. They no, were tra- no, no, no. He and his brother came mm-hmm. to town. Mm-hmm. He got a job almost immediately. Mm-hmm. They were staying at a motel. Mm-hmm. He was in, he was driving in his car and he ran out of gas. Mm-hmm. He's walking with his gas can and mm-hmm. David Allen was driving a car that he had stolen from from his hometown, Vider, Texas. Real quick, it's actually not, it's David Harris. David Harris, sorry. sorry. Who is David Allen? Never mind. Um, Doesn't matter. David Harris was driving a car that he had stolen from Vider, Texas. Mm-hmm. That's another that's another thing we talk about. Mm-hmm. And saw him, saw Randall Adams and pulled over and picked him up. And they end up spending the evening together. They get something to eat. They go to they bowl. a bar. Or mm-hmm. bo- you know, they bowl. They go mm-hmm. to a um, movie theater and watch some Nore movies. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they go... De- uh, why do I keep wanting to call him Dennis? Randall Adams and David Harris. David keeps. Uh, David wants to because he doesn't. He's sixteen. Yeah. Um, he thinks he's going to spend the night, not spend the night, but you know, like stay at Randall's. Um, yeah. Motel. He, has, he has no place to stay. He wants to crash with Randall and his brother at their hotel. Yeah, and and, and uh, Randall. Randall is the thing is Randall said, you know, hey man. Um, if you want a job, I can get you a job. Um, come back on Monday and follow me out to the plant and I can get you a job. No mm-hmm. problem. So he's being like super sweet, super nice, super helpful. He's like, you know, my brother didn't like strangers in the room. So, you know, I'll see you later. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was all it took. Yeah. That, we come to find out, sets David Harris against Randall Adams. Because David Harris is a psycho. So then David Harris is yes. tooling around town in that stolen blue car and that's when the cops pull him over for driving without his headlights on he winds up shooting officer wood and speeding off and that's who officer turco sees they wind up picking up adams randall adams for it and implicating him and the only how did they pick up randall adams for it uh, oh that's right uh david harris told yeah, them yeah because because david harris after the killing david harris goes back to vider texas mm-hmm. and is immediately back in like other legal trouble and like bouncing around. Also bragging to all of his friends that he did the killing, including one Hootie Nelson. Real name Hootie Nelson. 
his friends were fucking amazing. I loved them. They yeah. they were like I could not imagine anyone else living in Vider, Texas mm-hmm. in the mid eighties. Yeah. I loved them and I want to hang out with all of them. Yeah. Um gave one of them the gun mm-hmm. that he used and was like, hide this for me. And he's like, So I just did. I wasn't sure. Um yeah, it's and was bragging insane. about it to everyone. Then has a moment of has this like moment of like, wait, I'm bragging about this murder of a cop. Mm-hmm. I better hang on shit. Which okay. is on TV. Like it's this is a cop was murdered in Dallas and it was big news. The cops were hunting for the killer yeah, you because you don't shoot a cop anywhere. As, as one of the detectives said in the documentary, uh, I'm pointing over my shoulder at the TV, which you can't see, but that's where I watched it on the TV. It was on the uh, TV. The the cops said, Listen, we've we've unfortunately had some police be murdered before, but we've We've always cleared those cases very quickly. Mm-hmm. So they hadn't cleared it quickly, and it was very frustrating to them. Like a month went by before they wound up picking up Randall to was bring it in. Was a month or was yeah. it longer? No, it was, okay. about, it was a month. Here's where I'm going to say that here's where I'm going to discuss the movie for a second, the actual mm-hmm. movie, mm-hmm. and something that I had a problem with. Daniel and I love documentaries, mm-hmm. um, especially I love true crime documentaries. I love documentaries. But they, Errol Morris made a really, in my opinion, really poor choice to not name anyone in the documentary. Mm -hmm. So they would just show a dude with, you know, in 80s clothes with big 80s tinted glasses. And he'd be like, well, when we saw him, we blah, 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 and blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, I I don't know who that is. And then they'd go to another guy and he'd be like, and then I said, blah, blah. And I'm like, I don't know who that, what the fuck is going on? Who are these people? I didn't know who were cops. I didn't know who any, the only way that you figure anything out was like context clues. The judge was like, and I, when I presided, I'm like, presided, that's the judge. Okay, Mm -hmm. got it. And I would love to ask Errol Morris, like, what were you thinking there? Like, what? Why why should I be constantly like who are you who mm-hmm. who are you wait who is that the bad guy are you right. the bad guy like right. it's clear they interviewed David Harris mm-hmm. um and they interviewed um Randall Adams and they were both in prison prison jumpsuits yeah jumpsuits so I was like okay well clearly those are guys that are in prison but other than that I was like okay let's yeah. just watch this go I have something about that, actually. You do? Yeah. Uh, so this is from an essay by Charles Musser in 2015 for the Criterion Collection. Lay it on me, Charles. Which has issued uh, a really nice package of the Thin Blue Line. Um, so I've got some good quotes from him. Uh, one of the things that he talks about is how this was, in a lot of ways, a very groundbreaking documentary. And we can talk more about that, too. One of the ways it was groundbreaking that we definitely want to talk about is its use of reenactments. Because there was the the shooting of Officer Wood is reenacted and filmed several times um, from different perspectives and with different details changed or altered based on people's yep. recollection. And it's it's staged, as Errol Moore said, it's not based on what he thinks happened. He's staging the witness accounts as a way to show how they're all different and yes. and shaping reality. Um, and so one of the things that this movie does is, is in addition to those reenactments, which were really in-depth and, and progressive for its time, was it plays around with a lot of the rules and breaks a lot of rules of traditional documentary filmmaking especially document documentaries in the uh 80s mid to late 80s yeah um one thing that charles muster says was quote uh several serious documentaries focusing on high stakes topics generally embrace a well-established set of conventions and instead as one variety reviewer noted this film's visual elements were quote entirely at odds with the technique of the ordinary documentary Talk for one small example, the thin blue line does not provide the names and titles of interviewees in the lower third of the screen as is customary. Annoying. 
Uh, Randall Adams might refer to Gus Rose in a way that suggests that the next person to appear on screen is Rose, who's a police officer, but we can't be certain. The only way to identify members of the police force is through the end credits. In short, The Thin Blue Line presents its characters more in the style of fiction films than of traditional documentaries. Certainly, Morris incorporates newspaper items and other documents, but he duplicates and presents these records in an aestheticized way, displaying an indifference to traditional signs of authenticity. Likewise, Philip Glass's haunting score often plays under the testimony of the interviewees, providing an emotional inflection to their statements that documentaries have traditionally avoided as undesirable manipulation. By using Glass's work in this way as, quote, movie music... Philip Glass. Yeah, Philip Glass is the composer. Sorry. Uh, By using Glass's work in this way as, quote, movie music, Morris is once again borrowing from the conventions of fiction filmmaking. Indeed, when talking about the thin blue line, Morris is often associated it with film noir. So he definitely... It is very film noir. He was definitely breaking rules on purpose to mess with not just the way the story was told, but mess with your expectations of how it would happen. Yeah. Because, yeah, like some... You would expect not only the the names and titles of the people like identified on screen, but when someone mentions, and then I talked to so-and-so, and then it cuts to another person, you expect that next person to be the person that was just mentioned. That's how screen storytelling works 99% of the time. But mm. it doesn't work that way in this movie. No. It is designed to keep you a little unmoored and focusing on the storytelling and the recollections of these people. And you kind of become this funnel for all their different perspectives and recollections and memories. Yeah. 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 So um, one of the neat things about it is it definitely breaks those rules on purpose a lot. It says it's going to tell you a story that it knows is real and believes is real, but wants to do it in a way that like messes with that convention. So yeah. So okay. So can I talk about some things? Sure. Okay. First of all, I do not know, and Daniel says that my accent gets real twangy when I talk about this. You because literally just did on the word I. Well. You said ah. I can't help it. <laughs> I can't help it when I listen to these people. That, now you're doing it on purpose. I know I am. Okay. When I, no, but when I that listen. That was to, it, okay. When, when I listen to people that, uh, when I listen, when I listen, <laughs> stop. Now you're making me all, now I'm going to do it because I can't help it. My mother's got a strong Texas accent, and when I'm around her, it comes out. And I also just have a Texas accent. My sister and brother don't. I do. It comes out when I'm around, when I hear it, when I hear a strong Texas And this documentary is full of them. Also, when I say certain places like Vider, Texas, mm-hmm. how do you not have an accent after you say Vider, Texas? Yeah. Um, so I thought this was really interesting. Say and oil. Oil. There it is. Um, if you want to know... Mm, uh, Vider, Texas is down here. <laughs> uh, say TV. TV. Yeah, no, that's not mm. how you say it. Okay. It's called TV. Um, for those of you that saw three billboards outside. Ebbing? Ebbing's, Missouri. Yeah, Ebbing's, The three Missouri. billboards movie. There's only been the three one. three billboards. It's fucking amazing. It's one of my favorite movies of the last few years. I highly recommend you see it. It is, it can be very triggering, but it is very powerful and um, has one of my favorite monologues maybe ever in it. That was based on three billboards in Vider, Texas. Yeah, it's um, a real case. It's a real case of a woman who was killed by her husband, but they couldn't, they wouldn't. It was a, Vider is a very um, bad place. It is very, it's, well, it's got, it's one of the headquarters of the KKK, or was, and it's one of those towns where who you know is 
all you need, you know, the powers in the, the people, you know, with the money and the, mm-hmm. it's real creepy. And, yeah. um, anyway, so three billboards is from there. Look that up. That is a fantastic story. The, the true story is fantastic. The, um, mur- uh, my favorite murder girls do a really great bit on it. You should look it up. But, uh, David Harris is from Vider, Texas. And you see the same fucking thing happening there as in, as when three billboards, which happens later. So I guess you see the three, it doesn't matter. The point is it's a shady as fuck town. And the only good thing in it is Sam Cottrell, who is this darling cop. The detective guy. Yeah. Yes. Mm -hmm. He's this darling cop who reminds us of Doug, uh, Doug Matthews Doug on Matthews McMillions. from McMillions, the FBI agent. Also, mm-hmm. if you're not watching McMillions, you really should, because it's really amazing. That'll probably be your hell yeah. It'll probably be my hell yeah. And my hell yeah is you, baby, because it's Oh, my hell yeah is you, baby. No, I take it back. Gr- oh, um, shit. <laughs> I was a little confused. They didn't say how... I don't think they said how they found Randall Adams. Yeah, I don't think I don't remember some of that either. Like the movie definitely leaves some stuff undressed. Yeah, there's, a, there's one that I want to talk about that's undressed too. Okay, yeah. mm-hmm. I also get super annoyed, and this is just me having spent way too much time on crime and stuff. Here's what you do when you're arrested: you say lawyer, and then you don't say anything else. I don't understand why this is a problem for people. You don't talk. The cops are not your friend. And Paul Holes, God bless you, Paul Holes. You are my dream. Paul Holes will argue that you should, you know, talk to the cops. But Paul Holes was a cop, so he's going to say that. For those of you who don't listen to Jensen and Holes, the murder squad, you really should. This may female police officers look absolutely terrible. Like, I'm so embarrassed at the sheer incompetence and criminal behavior of this moronic woman who's like, I'm just going to sit here with my malted while you go, you know, do this thing. And she was one of the first on the patrol. She was one of the first on the patrol. With the Dallas force. And she's like, She gets pulled into IAB and then she comes out and fucking perjures herself. Like, fuck you, woman. You are setting us. We're trying, we are trying to break the glass ceiling and you're fucking throwing your malted on it. This whole thing wrecked her career too. Thank God. I just keep saying I'm super annoyed that no one's labeled. Uh, the prosecutor tried to get the, one of the defense attorneys killed, 100%. He, the prosecutor, one of the defense attorneys, um, looked exactly like what I imagine Greg Brady would look like if he had been that age. Mm-hmm. Very clearly a Jewish man from like the from the from east from the east from like you know Boston or something. Mm-hmm. Very clearly. <laughs> Very yeah. clearly, okay? That's not... And the DA is like a gung-ho death penalty Dallas guy. Yeah, who's... so the DA goes ahead of the defense attorneys to Vider, Texas, meets up with the fucking clan, and is like, there's some... I'm sure he used language that I would yeah. not use. Mm-hmm. There's some uh, Jewish lawyer from up east who's going to be coming here and messing up with y'all's business and all mm-hmm. this stuff. So... He gets there and they are following him everywhere. Mm-hmm. I'm genuinely amazed that he was not shot. Yeah. I swear to God, I think that Mulder, I can't remember his first name. Mulder was the I prosecutor. Doug Mulder. I Doug Mulder. Was the DA at the I'm time, yeah. genuinely mm-hmm. amazed that he, that the, the defense attorney was not murdered. Because 
the way that he describes it was terrifying. Yeah. Um, and it's interesting, too. Like, I, for, I have to remind myself about, like, the passage of time because this movie came out in the late 80s. We're watching it in 2020. But the crime itself happened in... 76. 76. And so these investigations are happening in, you know, the late 70s. And this is a small town in Texas dealing with this stuff. And it's shocking to see these pictures of the Klan and, and talk, learn about this focal point. But you realize, wait a minute... It's been less than 10 years since King was assassinated. Yeah. No, like, they're just out there like, what's up? Like, we're the clan. Like, you think it's bad now. Like, it, th- this stuff was still fresh and, and happening. Yeah. Then. You know, like, this was, it was so, so awful, some of the stuff these people dealt with. Yeah. So. I said, I wrote down that the Dallas cops, they just wanted to find the appropriate villain. They didn't care about the right one. They mm-hmm. did not care. They wanted, they didn't want some precious... Uh, David Harris has an angelic face, absolutely angelic, mm-hmm. um, and has this soft, sweet way of speaking. It's kind of all shucks, y'all. Just like, well, you know, I don't know. I'm just in trouble. I don't know. I'm always just out there mm-hmm. getting in trouble. It's I'm like Boomhauer, basically. Just I don't even know, man. Just, yeah, uh, and you know? so they're like, we don't. We're not going to take the 16 year old. We're going to take the 20, 28, like 28 year old yeah. man. And we're gonna just ruin his life. We don't give a shit if he did it or not. I mean, I swear to God, that's they don't. They did not care. They paid witnesses to testify and perjure themselves. They got one lady's daughter was gonna be sent up on armed robbery charges, and they dropped those charges and had her lie in jail. I mean, lie in court. I'm. It's it's the kind of thing where you're watching it and you're like, I'm watching this. Yeah. This is happening. It's awful. Like, it's it's terrifying. Funny than we're yeah. hearing it. Um, and yeah, like, it's one of the theories put forth by some of the defense attorneys in the film, which, which more seems to back up, is that the prosecutors wanted to prosecute. One of the reasons they liked Adams for it was you can go after the death penalty. And, That's right. And this was not only a death penalty era in the U.S., but, I mean, it was the death penalty era in Texas, like... We love to fry them up. Like it reminds me of uh, That's terrible. that Ron White joke from like 20, 25 years ago about how other states are getting rid of the death penalty and Texas is putting it in an express lane. Like, yep. Like they just, and uh, the DA, Mulder, retired with a perfect track quote, record. Quote, unquote. Yeah. Perfect. W- with a quote, unquote, perfect track record of convictions. They showed this list of convictions and it was like, Disgusting. like, you know, death, life, 500 years, 50 years. Like he just, he just put all these people away and he just... They went after the death penalty so hard. And so when Adams was convicted, it was originally, he was originally sentenced to death. He yep. got the death penalty. He got the death penalty. Um, because they just, they were killing folks left and right. Yeah. Which is, uh, which actually is interesting. That's how this movie got started. Because the movie is, of course, a documentary about the the miscarriage of justice, the wrongful imprisonment of Randall Adams. Yes. But that's not what Errol Morris started off making the movie about. Errol Morris wanted to make a movie about Dr. Death. Dr. James Grigson was his name. He was notorious uh, because of his role in of the implementation of the death penalty in Texas. Basically, what he would do is, you know, like a, when somebody's on trial, they call in a shrink and say, is this guy crazy? And he would come in and testify every time that, yes, this person is a huge threat and a huge danger and will commit this crime again and needs to be put to death. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. He just, that's what he did. He would testify and he would come in and say like, he's like, I 100% know for a fact this person will do this again, mm-hmm. regardless of their past behavior. And so. Randall Adams described what happened when he came in. He came in and spent 15 minutes with him. Mm-hmm. He had him draw some um, 
shapes? Shapes. But copy these shapes. Copy these shapes. Then he said, what does a rolling stone gathers no moss mean to you? Mm-hmm. What does a bird in a hand is, is worth two in yeah. the bush mean to you? Like, ask him 15 minutes. And uh, Randall Adams, like, says his answers. Uh, and, and then the guy goes in and he's like, this man will kill everyone he can yeah. see. Like, he will kill the second he gets out. And Randall Adams is like, but what? Like, yeah. <laughs> where Apparently, did you come up yeah. with that? And so that's the thing. This guy, Dr. Grigson, who was called Dr. Death, was what Errol Morris wanted to make his documentary about. This is from an interview that Errol Morris did in, uh, with Slate a few years ago. Uh, he said, quote, he testified that he could predict with 100% certainty that he could predict that Adams would kill again given the opportunity to do so and that David Harris couldn't hurt a fly. Uh, and in Errol Morris's view, it was an opportunity in one instance to be 200% wrong. Grigson said, uh, you've got to go to death row and interview these people. They're not like you and me. That's the quote. They're not like you and me. And so I set up a series. I call them prisoner auditions at various different prisons in Texas. And at each one of those prisons, I interviewed inmates who had been sentenced to death in part because of what Grigson said at their trial. Randall Adams was in a whole class of defendants who the jury instructions were not even administered correctly. Adams came within two or three days of being electrocuted, actually. So anyway, Errol Moore says he's there at the Eastern Unit doing several interviews that day. Randall Adams is one of them. Randall Adams was never picked out, quote, as the guy I was going to make a movie about. He told me he was innocent. He started going on about the kid, and I had no idea what he was talking about. How would I? I knew nothing about the case. All that I knew was that he'd been sentenced to death in part because of Grigson's role at his trial. So I did these interviews, and I went to Austin to read the trials. I remember reading that transcript very well. That's the beginning of it all. And he said uh, what tipped him off was, quote, it's something true of so many cases that you know something is wrong. You know someone is essentially being framed, but you don't know why and how. Mm -hmm. So uh, he realized that uh, he wanted to start telling the story because Errol Morris had worked a lot of weird, odd jobs, like bounced around. Again, he'd made documentaries before. He was at the time working as what? A private investigator and was used to like researching on stuff like this. So one of the reasons this movie is so strong is because he didn't want to just tell the story of this guy that he thought was like actually innocent, but he knew he needed to make something that would stand up to scrutiny legally. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he certainly did. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's amazing to me. They did not interview, by the way, they did not interview the DA because... uh, He declined to be interviewed. He declined. Just... Shocker. Yeah, just uh, no surprise Um, there. The judge, I said, was a vindictive little bitch. He was. He was so mad that the U.S. Supreme Court... um, uh, So they wanted a, a new trial. Because I can't remember why they wanted it. Why oh, they... yeah. So um, that's the thing. Adams is convicted. Randall Adams is convicted, given the death sentence. The death sentence is overturned by the Supreme Court. No. They, it gets, yeah. It gets, and so then it gets, then the governor commutes it to life. That's right. No, I it, I swear to God they were going to give him a new trial. And so instead of giving him a new trial. Yeah. That's what it was. Mm-hmm. The The U.S. Supreme Court, the, the Texas Court of Appeals was like, yeah, fine, we don't give a mm-hmm. shit. Yeah. And then they go to the U.S. Supreme Court and they were like, uh, we don't like this. Mm-hmm. I mean, to the to the tune of eight to one, mm-hmm. they didn't like it. And so they're like, yeah, new trial. And so Texas was like, hmm, we don't want him to get yeah. a new trial. So we'll just commute it to life. And then we don't have to worry about the death sentence. Yep. Governor commutes and a sentence. everybody was like, all of the, def- the defense attorneys were like, son of a bitch. Yeah, they just sidestep it, basically. Son of mm-hmm. a bitch. Yeah. 
I wrote totally commuted so they wouldn't lose. Oh, yeah. It's just crooked as shit. It's crooked as shit. I also want to watch The Swingin' Cheerleaders. I wrote that down. It's one of the Yeah, movies. one of the movies that the guys went to see at the drive-in was called The Swingin' Cheerleaders. Daniel and I really want to see that it's a, It looks amazing. Could be an excellent Valentine's movie. Ooh. Um, <laughs> I also... <laughs> I also wrote down, uh, they, they got Randall Adams' brother for like two seconds, and he was like, I told him, I told him we liked watching wrestling, wrestling matches, and we wanted to... His brother's not even in this. That was a guy... Was his brother? No, that was a guy quoting somebody oh, else. Yeah, that's the I thing. That One of the things brother. I wanted to talk about was, his brother is not involved in this, and his brother was at the motel room and could have provided the alibi. asleep. Yeah, but like he, he, but he was there, but he could have provided an alibi and said that he came back at this time. Or no, he was asleep. Yeah, but like, okay, what I'm saying is like they they got him to back off his testimony, and he never came forward or said anything else. Okay, well, he made a very good point that he did not want to be in. He did not want to get caught in perjury, and the whole point. Randall Adams says, "I came back. My mm-hmm. brother was asleep. So he watched the Carol. I Burnett watched show. the Carol Burnett show. Mm-hmm. So that was his brother could not have given him an alibi because he was yeah, true. again asleep. Yeah. Now I want to talk about David Harris because he is Oof. basically the most important part of this movie. Oh my god! And uh, I'm going to spoil it for you. And I'm not using this word lightly. I'm using this word as a, this boy is a psychopath, Mm -hmm. like an actual psychopath. Not like, oh my God, it's like a psychopath. I mean, like the real thing Yeah. where there's nothing behind his eyes, where he started young, young being. Oh, yeah. And, And the way that this detective, Sam Cottrell talked about him like a father like well now you know and i just uh i was like david uh now i know we go through this every time i ask you a question you know i ask you and you lie and you just gotta tell me the truth now david and then he does and so you i just imagine this child growing up in this town doing god knows what because by the time he was 16 he had a rap sheet already yeah and he was a pro at 16 at this stuff yeah 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 he it's would rob cheat steal kidnap no remorse. i mean and no remorse at all he'd just be like yeah i just feel like doing it and i don't know and blah 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 and on and on and and the really interesting thing to me is that the cops the dallas cops were like Let's see. We have Randall Adams. Absolutely no rap sheet. Has never done anything wrong in his nope, life. No priors. Criminal. I mean, I'm sure he's done yeah. plenty wrong. You know, we all have. Um, no no priors. No, not a speeding ticket. No. Then you have David Harris, who has one longer than my arm at 16. And who, as the, as the defense attorney pointed out, furnished all the tools of the crime oh yeah the blue car he stole it was his gun yeah um no no he he said and this is how casually he was like yeah you know i uh, got up uh one morning and i went in uh went in uh broke into my neighbor's house and uh stole some guns and some money i stole their car i don't quite remember how i did it but uh yeah, I stole her car, and then I just drove drove around, drove to Dallas. Says it just like yeah, that. just like that. And so you're like, oh, that's cool. I mean, he's got a shotgun. He's got a, he had a, a couple shotguns, a pistol. Mm-hmm. I mean, just, sh- just, uh, just what a boy needs for right. a road trip. Yeah, guns and a stolen car, mm-hmm. and then he's on his merry way. Mm-hmm. And so when they're interviewing him, he's in prison. When they talk about looking for him. 
they talk about looking for him. He goes into the into the army. Every time they find him, he's in prison yeah. somewhere. He's in prison for this. He's in prison for that. Mm-hmm. He's in prison for this. They finally, finally, uh, his last story uh, that we hear about, mm-hmm. and I'm sure you have many more, um, is that he's back. I think he was back in Vider or, yeah, he's back in Vider. What are you? No, I don't know. He goes into some guy's house, breaks into his house, puts the puts the guy in the bathroom with the gun, like, you know, mm-hmm. go in there, and then is going to kidnap his girlfriend. Mm-hmm. And the guy comes out and is shooting at David, and David shoots and kills him. Mm-hmm. And Sam Cottrell says, what, what in the hell... Why would you do that? And he said, that guy was crazy. He was shooting at me. And he goes, you put him in the bathroom and tried to kidnap his girlfriend. What did you think he was going to do? And he's like, well, that guy's crazy. I don't know what he was doing. And you're like, you just see it. You're like, you're a fucking psychopath. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he's crazy. And the thing is, he's being interviewed while in prison. He's he's in prison oranges. and all shocked. So that's the thing. Like, uh, you know, Randall Adams has been on, has been in prison this whole time. You know, because this movie, of course, the interviews were done several years after this, after the case happened. So Randall Adams, of course, was interviewed in prison, like like I said, a few minutes ago. But uh, a few er- minutes. Oh, sorry. And, um, yeah. <laughs> Errol Morris is like knows that to make this movie, he's got to get an interview with uh, David Harris. So he first starts off by like contacting the parole officer in Texas who didn't want to give up the number, but said she'd call David on on his behalf and get in touch with him uh, and leave a number where he could be reached. And then. David calls back like a few minutes later and like sets that up. So, uh, but then a few months, a few months later, winds up going back to prison. He meets up with Harris. Uh, Errol Morris meets up with Harris at a bar outside of Vider, uh, and they interview and talk and stuff. And Morris is like really freaked out, but knows this guy is, is into some dirt and stuff. Uh, and so then he spends several months after that trying to get him interviewed on film for this movie. They had an interview to do uh, an appointment, excuse me, to do an interview in Houston where uh, David Harris was working at the time, and he broke the appointment for the interview and couldn't be found. He turned up about a week later. That's when he because he'd been involved in a murder. As as uh, and Morris says, as I often say, it's my favorite excuse for breaking an appointment. I was off killing somebody. Jesus Christ. Yeah. So, so he so Morris says, quote, I was desperate to get an interview with David Harris. It kept getting fucked up. In the first instance, you know, he was a murderer. Then I tried to interview him in Jefferson County Jail, and he used the fact that I was interviewing him to try to escape. He was rattling around in the heating duct system for 24 hours before he just got cold and hungry and crawled back in. Jesus Christ. Yeah. Uh, I tried to interview him in Huntsville on death row. This is, again, from the Slate, inter- Slate interview. Uh, quote, I tried to interview him in Huntsville on death row, but they refused to allow me to interview him except through chicken wire, and I felt that would ruin the movie because it was through chicken wire. You're just giving away that he's in prison and it, you know, messes with the aesthetic. So the interview you see of Harris in the movie, you see him in these uh, prison oranges talking. And then the final interview in the movie is a tape recorder. Tape recorder. Close up a tape recorder. And that's all that Morris got. And it was just done over two days. His camera broke on the Friday, he says. He couldn't get a replacement. And he came back with a tape recorder on Saturday. I'd been trying to get an interview with David Harris for close to two years. It had fallen through again and again. I had finally managed to arrange this interview at Lou Starrett Jail in Dallas. I'm still amazed that it happened. I'd shot, I don't know, five or six rolls of film. The camera malfunctioned, and I just thought, oh my God, this is the end of it. And we came back the next day thinking that I did not have a movie. And I tape recorded that last interview, and there you go. What I couldn't put in because there's no film. I asked David Harris if he was alone in the car when they were stopped, when he was stopped. And he smiled at me and nodded his head because he knew he couldn't use it because there was Mm -hmm. no video. 
And he, I mean, he's like, he talked to David the day before he was executed. You didn't tell me that. I just found this out today. He talked to him the day before he was executed? Yeah. Well, he admits that he did it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's the thing, like, he says, he basically comes right out and says that, um, he says that, uh, he, you know, he uses, like, he's like, remember that parable I told you, that story I told you? David Harris says that the reason he turned on Randall Adams was because Randall Adams wouldn't let him crash that night. Yeah. And stay at the hope, stay at place. He's like... I think that's the only reason he's where he's at right now is because he wouldn't offer a stranger some help. Yeah. Like, just fucking cold as anything. Yeah, but he sounds like the sweetest, mm-hmm. he, like I said, face like an angel and sounds like the sweetest aw shucks guy. Like, you, like, you're like, oh, yeah, I can see how someone who doesn't have, I don't know, any sense yeah. um, or doesn't want to believe, like, this sweet cop inviter like he does not want to believe that this kid that he's known his whole life is mm-hmm. a psychopath murderer yeah he but thinks he, he gets he needs to get his act together he knows yeah, it. he does they he all does. know it yeah and it's just his friends knew it yeah his friends were like if i did the stuff that david did i would never be able to live with myself like mm-hmm. i would he's like when i do something one of his friends oh my god with his little hat on yeah if i did something if i do something bad man it just eats at me i just i just can't deal with it and i'm thinking well that's not the case for david harris who yeah. is a psychopath yeah and uh it's just it, it's an amazing documentary and and a, and a documentation of this as, as the defense attorney says the wheels of justice being set into motion in the wrong direction at the wrong person as Errol Moore said looking back at the movie there's always things you wish you knew more about like the actual relationship between the district attorney's office and those eyewitnesses uh, but Moore says, I've always been of the belief that nobody thought Randall Adams was not guilty and they tried to frame him for murder. It seems much more plausible they truly believed he was guilty. And if he was guilty, then whatever they did was justified. And they didn't even have to say that to themselves on a conscious level. So, uh, oh, boy. yeah, which is, uh, it's it's not so much that they like put together some conspiracy to frame this guy. It's that they liked this guy and they wanted to be able to put somebody to death. And they just... We just really like killing people they just, here in Texas. They were like, he's he did it. Um, he did it, so he did it. So all the evidence they found, they made themselves believe, backed up their story. Because it's just, it was simpler for them to believe it. I don't know. I don't know. I, yeah. I, I think... My, I am more of a mind to believe that they... they that that uh, what's-his-name Mulder picked him and said... That's who I can get, and that's who I'm going to get. Yeah. And I don't care how I have to do it. Yeah. They, okay, let me say this. When they first brought Adams in, they slam him in this room. I don't know if he asked for a lawyer or not. I would hope that he did, but they wouldn't let him have one. He said he went through two packs of cigarettes and had been out for a long time. A cop mm-hmm. came in with uh, with a confession that had been written out for him and said, sign this. And he said, no, I'm not going to sign that. I didn't do it. And yeah. he said, uh, you sign that. I'm not leaving this room until you sign that. And he said, I guess you're not leaving. I mean, I'm not going to sign it. At one point, the cop gets his gun out and points it in mm-hmm. Randall Adams' face and says, sign it. And he's like, no. I mean, it, it's unreal to me the shit that this man had to go through. And something that, that I want to point out also, I like to think I read people pretty well. I don't know. I mean, I've been, I've been had uh, a number of times like anybody else, but Randall Adams throughout the movie, when you see him is haunted Mm -hmm. and in pain. Mm -hmm. I mean, there is pain there. Uh, David Harris 
it's like he just came from a party or he's just about to go to the bar. Like nothing. nothing. There's nothing there. Everything is all shucks and just sweet smiles. It's fucking terrifying, man. You want to talk about someone who's going to go right back out and kill Mm -hmm. or right back out. He did. Mm -hmm. And he would. And if they hadn't put him to death, Jesus Christ knows what he would have done. So you promised that you would tell me and I did not Google you. I'm going to share some stuff with you. what happened to my um, friend Randall Adams. Yes. So this movie had quite the impact on, on real life. It came out, and although it uh, didn't play in a lot of theaters and it didn't make hardly any money, it uh, was very well received. It, it like critics were blown away by it. Mm-hmm. it. Like it made the list. Rightfully so. It made the list of like um, the best movies of the year for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. A, lot of, a lot of critics awards. So. Um, I'm reading from Wikipedia now because they have a really good recap of, of what happens here. Um, so, you know, the film basically sa- suggests that the witnesses committed perjury, that they were like knowingly stretching the truth and making stuff up on, on the stand just to for their own motives and to just railroad this guy. Uh, and because it's what the cops wanted them to do. Oh, wait. Can, yeah. I, can I tell about my favorite witness? Yes. Okay. My favorite witness who was for the defense, um, this woman came on. Um, she came on right after they were talking about the witnesses for the prosecutions, the one that were criminals and just awful people. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, there's this woman, classic Texas. I mean, classic. I'm going to post a picture of her. Um, the courtroom sketch. The courtroom her. sketch yeah. for I fucking love her. Her name is Elba Carr. Let's just shout it out for Elba. Elba? Elba. Carr. They go to her, just boop, and she goes, they were scum. it's amazing (laughs) and i was like well i'm in love with this woman yeah and every time they talked to her she was like oh yeah this and this she fucking discounts everything she because she worked with these people and then she testifies and Mulder calls her a nosy busybody tells her that no one's interested Mm -hmm. in anything she has to say laughs at her just laughs her out of the courtroom it's it's horrible and embarrassing and this woman was a fucking badass Mm -hmm. so she was my she was my uh we loved her extra because i mean if you uh if you're from texas and you had a grandma in the 70s or 80s she was elbacar oh my goodness you're gonna this movie down to the frosted eyeshadow. Yeah, she, she will take you back. This she will. is this is your grandma. They were scum. If you're our age. Um. Anyway, so sorry. So I had no, to. I yeah. had to. Pull so what happens Elbacar. is the movie comes out and it makes quite the splash and it makes a very convincing case that Harris was the killer. The witnesses mm-hmm. committed perjury. The cops were a shit show, etc. As a result of the publicity around the film, Adams uh, had his conviction overturned by the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals. The case was returned to Dallas County for a retrial. District Attorney's Office declined to prosecute, and Adams was subsequently ordered released as a result of a habeas corpus hearing in 1989. So a year after the movie comes out, he's released from prison. Oh, that almost makes me cry. That's wonderful. Um, and interesting. So, uh, how many years had he had he spent in jail? Uh, about prison. twelve, twelve, um, for a crime he didn't commit. After Adams is released from prison, he ended up in a legal battle with Morris concerning the rights to his story. The matter was settled out of court after Adams was granted sole use of anything written or made on the subject of his life. Adams himself said of the matter, quote, Mr. Morris felt he had the exclusive rights to my life story. I did not sue Errol Morris for any money or any percentages of the thin blue line, though the media portrayed it that way. Morris, oh, that's a shame. Morris, for his part, recalled, when Adams got out, he became very angry at the fact that he had signed a release giving me rights to his life story. And he felt as though maybe I had, he felt as though I had stolen something from him. Maybe I had. 
Maybe I just don't understand what it's like to be in prison for that long for a crime you hadn't committed. In a certain sense, the whole crazy deal with the release was fueled by my relationship with his attorney. And it's a long, complicated story, but I guess when people are involved, there's always a mess somewhere. So Morris clearly has a lot of feelings about this, um, even though there was an ultimate good that came out of it. But yeah, I think there is some, some wisdom there. Like He's like, I don't know what it's like to be in prison for 12 years. You get out, you know, like it's... You're, you're shook, you're shocked, you know, and he was yep. just scared that the rights to his life story were gone. And as Adam, Adam said in that quote, he's like, I didn't ask for money from him. I didn't ask for a cut of the movie. I just want the rights to my life back. Because think about it, your rights to your life were taken away and you were put in prison for a crime you didn't commit. Yeah, also maybe have some, mm-hmm. maybe have a little bit of gratitude to the man that got I know. you out. I don't know. Uh, anyway, um, Did he one- sue... Um, no, there's, there's just a little more that I have here. Uh, despite being wrongly imprisoned for 12 years, he received no payment from the state of Texas. Fuck. Had he been found to be wrongly convicted under today's law in Texas, he would get 80 grand for each year of incarceration. However, since he was released because his case was dismissed and not because he was pardoned, he received no payment from the state after his release for his wrongful conviction. He later worked as an anti-death penalty activist. He died of brain cancer in October 2010 no. at the age of 61, oh, but lived in such baby. anonymity that his death was not discovered by the media until June of 2011. Errol Morris announced it on Twitter that summer. Oh, um, that breaks my heart. Brain cancer. Yeah. So this man's life was ruined by the evil of David Harris, who then committed... No, his life was ruined by the evil of David Harris and the justice and system. Mulder. And Mulder, yes. David Harris, who, of course, went off and committed the murder and other crimes, and David Harris was executed. So Adams was released. Yeah. And I mean, uh, that's that's why I said that one of the things that Morris talked about was have, knowing that he'd worked as a private investigator and that this was an important story to tell. He needed to make something that was not just visually or aesthetically compelling, a movie he wanted to make, but was also like a sound argument. I know it's it's a it's a bittersweet thing. I'm just real sad. I know. I know. He, he deserved to have. I know he did. Maybe it's real sad. He deserved but, to have a life. I know. Um, but. The, the good that came out of it in that he was he was released and so he was released in 89 and lived uh, so nice so 90 so 2000 lived another 20 21 years and and got his life back and campaigned against the death penalty in that time well I just think about <clears throat> sorry oh, sorry take a minute we'll cut it you don't have to cut it I don't want you to cut it um I think about when they first interview him, how um, excited he was. You know, they said, he said, um, they were in an economy where nobody could get a job and he got a job as soon as he got to town and he was so happy. He was Mm -hmm. so happy and like everything was going his way. And then this child enters his life and destroys it. And, um, and, and if he had died of brain cancer in, you know, any way that would have been what happened, but, but he wouldn't have lost those 12 years, um, you know, literally for nothing. Um, he wasn't even an accomplice. He wasn't even an unwitting accomplice. He was just Mm -hmm. this poor man who tried to take care of a kid for the night Mm Oh my goodness, that... Uh... Yeah, I mean, Randall Adams is walking down the street with a gas can because his car's out of gas. God, I wish he'd said no. David pulls over and offers him a ride and some help, and then because he gets in some gas, like they just hang out for the rest of the day, like grab some beer, smoke some grass, go see a movie, bowl. 
Uh, but Bennett Randall's like, hey, I, I can't let you crash on the floor with my brother and me at the hotel, but like, come back on Monday, I'll get you a job. And then David drives off, kills a cop, later pins it on Randall, and that changes the course of Randall's life forever. That's um, just... Uh... Yeah, it's it's hard, but the the movie did get I him know, released, and it also had a lot of interesting other effects. Some, this is from that uh, that essay by uh, by Charles Musser from Criterion. He says uh, the thin blue line helped launch an era in which opposition to the death penalty became newly politically viable in many parts of the United States. In its wake, the courtroom documentary arguably became the preeminent and most influential genre in the nonfiction mode. Filmmakers Joe Berlinger and Bruce Sanofsky have acknowledged the Thin Blue Line as an inspiration for their Paradise Lost trilogy, which ultimately contributed to the freeing of the West Memphis Three, one of whom was on death row. Jesus. Other filmmakers have also followed in Morris's footsteps. DNA evidence has also revealed that many more innocent people have been unjustly convicted of murder. Morris has argued that the problems with the death penalty go far beyond the possibility of executing an innocent. Quote, the death penalty makes mistakes more likely to happen, he remarked. It's no accident that you see this whole history of flawed, faulty convictions. The death penalty is a mistake-engendering machine. Yes. Um, and Barry Sheck, one of the founders of the Innocence Project, um, spoke in favor of the movie's uh, reenactments, saying they're very similar to courtroom visualizations, which help jurors see what happened. Mm -hmm. um, because, again, Morris is not creating what he thinks happened. The reenactments are constructed from testimony. That's why they look different that's every time. That's why they look different each time. Sheck says that that documentary effectively follows the form of an appellate brief. The simulations are not representing the incorporation of fiction in the documentary, but, but quote, properly align the film with established legal convictions and the discourse of sobriety that is nonfiction, which is so frustrating because uh, the reenactments are so beautiful and filmically shot and feel much more like you would see in a fiction film um, that yeah. they were not well received by a lot of members of the documentary branch of the Academy at the time. Because oh. although this movie made a lot of critics best of the year list, like best overall, not just best documentary, and won best documentary from a lot of uh, regional critics circles, uh, it did not get nominated for an Oscar. That's they, some bullshit. They disqualified it. Uh, because of the reenactments. They didn't like them. They said, yeah. they, they yeah. also, they were at a screening and uh, I, I found this piece in the LA Times. Uh, if enough people at the screening raise their hands to turn it off, they just turn it off. And so they turn off the movie, like not even done yet. They hadn't even gotten to like, because the, the third act reveal where it basically makes a strong case that David is the killer. Uh, they didn't even get that far. And oh, they, fuck off. they didn't like the reenactments. They didn't like the more fictional or um, emotionally uh, influenced approach of like, you know, a lot of close-ups of the police siren lights. They didn't view it as a more traditional, you know, staid documentary. And so, yeah, they didn't like it. Man, and they so, should talk to Ken Burns now. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And man, so, and I'm sorry, but yeah. fuck Barry Sheck. I don't want to hear anything that man has to say. He fucking got OJ off, and he's oh, a no, piece yeah. of shit. No, he's a piece of shit, and uh, OJ did it, and and will suffer for it. I'm just saying that he made a good point in terms of speaking up for the reenactments in the film, because a lot of people at the time, especially those more old school, old thinkers, said that the reenactments... Uh, were fictionalizing things yep. or editorializing. Yep. Um, and he said, no, this is, he's he's just visually reconstructing testimony. He's doing what we would do in court yeah. for people. Yeah. So this is, it's not some fictionalized version. Yeah. And, and that's what Morris had to stress several times. He's like, I'm not showing you what I think happened. Um, he lets the people's stories tell them. I mean, that's, that's one thing that I love what he said. He said, uh, Moore said, the purpose of documentary, whether it's true crime or anything else for that matter, is 
not just give us reality on a plate, but to make us think about what reality is. One thing you do learn in investigation is that we're all prisoners of narrative and we can't escape from narrative. We need stories to figure out what the world is about. Um, and so he wanted to make a movie in a lot of ways about all these people's recollections and stories conflicting and colliding and the repercussions of that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Memory is not to be trusted but I don't. I I actually don't believe that those witnesses were operating from memory. I believe they were operating from what they were told to say. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. There are always uh, the movies that that break break the boundaries, mm-hmm. and everybody has to holler about them. Um, this was obviously one of the documentary ones. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you think about two thousand one. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Who the fuck like 2001? They were probably like, wait, what is this? Wait, what's happening? Right. Mm-hmm. What's that astronaut doing? Who's right. in bed? How high do I need to be right now? What is going Very on? Very high is the answer. And that was a groundbreaking movie that now we look back and we're like, that's not weird at all. Of course, that's an aging man in a bed. I don't know what the fuck I'm talking about. But I'm just yeah. saying, like, it's... Uh, I did find... Um, just as an aside, I found the Philip Glass um, soundtrack to be a little overbearing. It I told be. you that last mm-hmm. night. Yeah. But I do agree that it it did what it was supposed to do. Yeah. I think I'm just more of like a Philip Glass, Jesus Christ. Okay. Yeah, I'm not really a fan. Like, I <sighs> I don't even quite get it, but whatever. He's known. But yeah, I, th- I think it's, it's a really, really well-made movie um, and had genuine effects on the lives of these people and the, the shape of... Of the future of filmmaking, like this is definitely one of those movies that if you watch, it will feel familiar to you. A lot of the style, I think, just because of other true crime documentaries you may have seen since then. Yeah, it had such an effect on the field. You will be annoyed that no one is named. You will be annoyed, yes. But I just, it's, uh, it's, it's a gorgeous, gorgeous haunting movie about haunting is this, the word. This yes. miscarriage of justice. This awful. It's the definition of railroading awful yeah this railroading of this this innocent man and i think only somebody with morris's <laughs> sorry you know, spoiler <laughs> yeah i think only somebody still watch it <laughs> and it's one of those great things too like only morris could have made this movie given his background his passions his work as a private investigator his desire to see this man freed and so he he knew that uh yes this couldn't just be me pleading on somebody's behalf and saying this man says he's innocent let's take a look yeah um like i got i gotta it's just uh I'm going to find you, the quote You got another quote? Well, it's... I, I was saying I it bad. So many quotes. He's very I did, yeah. Uh, with the thin blue line, I was always thinking, I guess, in parallel grooves. What can I... What can be used in order to get him out of prison as well as what he can do to make a movie? I was thinking like an investigator, as I was for years, hired to investigate crime. What do I need to uncover to make a case on Adams' behalf? If anyone thinks that somehow the investigation of the thin blue line was done without the court system in mind, that's just not true. Always in my mind was the fact that I have to produce evidence that will be sufficient to overturn this conviction in the court of law. And he talks later on about uh, the fact that, you know, the miscarriage of justice, the technical way to say it is it's totally fucked up. But that's not enough in our world. You have to bring it to the attention of yep. people in a powerful enough way that people are compelled to do something about it. You have to also have to embarrass the fuck out of the right people. Exactly. And that's the thing. This also happened in, again, the late 80s. This, just, this was just media and word of mouth. Can you imagine the internet if he'd been able to harness the internet when mm-hmm. for something like this mm-hmm. um which was the reason that so many true crime documentaries you know like making a murder he mentions blow up now because they have that 
ability to spread online. Absolutely. The, and you see, like, that's another story about the miscarriage of justice, but it's able to spread to so many people so quickly. Um, and this was limited basically by where you lived and could see the movie. And yep. it was just, um, but it, it slowly found its its fans over the years and was very influential to a lot of other people. Well, and somebody probably would have started a GoFundMe for mm-hmm. this guy. And exactly. Oh, exactly. That's had, exactly what would have happened. He would have had half a million dollars 100%. in two days. 100%. They would have started a GoFundMe for, for, for Randall Adams. Yeah. For sure. Did he have a family? Uh, uh, I didn't, I didn't find him just besides okay. the brother. I don't know. Well, God bless him. Yeah. God bless him. Um, I'm, I'm sorry that he, that he dealt with this. But I'm, I'm, I'm glad that he crossed paths with Errol Morris and was able to find some freedom. I hope that he found some measure of peace or, or quiet and toward the rest of his life. I'm going to say nothing good comes out of Vider, Texas. No, don't go to Vider. It's in Orange County near Beaumont. Don't go there either. And I'm going to tell you something. Daniel and I have been down there. And if you want to know what the first season of True Detective looks like, mm-hmm. just head, on, up. head on down. You're to not going to want to get out of your car. You're going to be down there like Jesus Christ. I'm going to find those little mm-hmm. creatures hanging from trees. It's not nice. And time is a flat circle, and I got to get the fuck out of here. Yeah. Moore said that too. The, his first interview with uh, with uh, Harris was in Vider, and he's driving these dirt roads. He's like, "This is the scariest place I've ever been in my life." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, it is. Don't. Go. Just stay out of Orange fucking, County. Just fucking don't go. Stay out of Orange County and stay out of Dallas County. Fuck you, Dallas. Yeah, just don't. That's from me to you, Dallas. Just stop being. I know I have. I know we have listeners in Dallas. I have dear friends that I love in Dallas. You and know they that know we, I love them. You know that we love you, and so we much. hate that you are that it has a hold of you, because it is evil. Yeah. I mean, yeah. for folks outside of Texas, which might be some people, they don't know the whole intrastate city feuds and relationships that go on uh when you were born in houston mm-hmm. uh the doctor holds you tenderly after he has slapped you and made you cry to mm-hmm. hold you up to his his, uh, his mouth up to your ear and whispers you hate dallas yep you hate dallas that's what you're taught and then gives you to your mother mm-hmm. who then also says did he tell you you hate dallas mm-hmm. and then you go to dallas and you go Oh, that's right. Yeah. This place sucks. Yeah. We may lose some listeners. I really don't care. I love you all. If you're in Dallas and you don't want to listen to us anymore. I'm sorry. Please listen. We we know it's... it's, it's Dallas sucks. It's, yeah, it's... it's yeah. You're not going to change my mind. No, probably not. I'm just... We were driving... I swear I've told this story before. We were driving to a wedding mm-hmm. that was in Dallas. I was sound asleep... And Daniel swears that the second we crossed the Welcome to Dallas like border, I sat up and I was like, "We're there, we're we're in it." I was not comfortable with that happening. It knows that I'm here. I do not. It feels me. I don't like some of your powers. I have powers. I don't like them. They upset me. It scares Daniel. It's very upsetting. Clearly. <sighs> anyway, so you like the movie? I loved it. I loved it. I'm very, very glad that he got out. Mm-hmm. I I am very yeah. sad that he passed. Yeah. Um, I'm also sad that David Harris was put to death. I don't. I'm not a not a death penalty fan. Oh, me either. Um, Awful. There's a Awful. mom, a mama that that was quoted on an MFM episode that said, um, "My daughter would never want someone to die." Yeah. 
for her or never want someone. It's something she said it really beautifully and it, mm-hmm. and it really, it like punched me in the gut. And I was like, Oh Jesus Christ, that's exactly right. Like mm-hmm. that's not what they'd want. Also, I feel like it's, I mean, I feel like if you're going to kill people, it's got to be a fair system and it is so not, yeah. it's so not. So I just, like, the just risk, don't do it. Like, you know, people already are already being falsely imprisoned. So, like, you're going to falsely kill people? Like, yeah. as, as Randall Adams was at one point just days from execution. Yeah. Like, it's not just the wrong man spent 12 years in prison. The state almost murdered the wrong man. Yeah. Like, it's just awful. It's It's pointless. Uh, it's barbaric. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Get rid of and it. And we live in a state that just loves it. It's fucking disgusting. L- loves it. Yeah, so if we can kill it, we will. That's Texas. Texas motto, yeah. But I'm glad, though, that you liked the movie and found it really interesting and compelling and, and enjoyed it. I did. Good. I did. Thank you for showing it to me. I'm, I'm glad you liked it. I'm going to lighten the load next week. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Comedy or something. I won't be crying during yeah. the podcast. Yeah. So. Um, I joked to Daniel, I'm like, I'll just show you 80s movies and you show me true crime documentaries and we'll be fine. Because he hasn't seen like any 80s movies really. And I feel like that's all I'm showing him, except they're ones that he needs to see. Right. And I think they're important. They're like important mm-hmm. snapshots of specific times and mm-hmm. places. And I don't see anything wrong with showing them to him. So. Not at all. Trust me, that's not what we're about. We're not just going to be doing 80s movies and whatever, but... But I probably am going to show from the eighties next week. Who knows? Who knows Mm -hmm. what my fancy will, where my fancy will take me? Mm -hmm. Tra la. Um, (laughs) So you want to do some hell yes? (laughs) Yeah, let's do some hell yes. Okay, you want to go first? Sure. Okay. Is it a video game? No. Oh my god, I'm shocked. It. That's mean. But I don't have a lot of skills. But anyway, oh stop it. uh, My hell yeah is a movie I just saw the other day, Midsummer. It was bananas the face you're making is understandable it is fucked up it is please don't describe it i'm not uh it is the second film by ari aster who made hereditary a couple years ago with tony collette probably really i really recommend that you have a psychiatrist and a psychologist maybe two he's i ari you have major problems i really do think ari should talk to someone anyway because hereditary was very good and very very fucked up. up but also supernatural spiritual horror uh midsummer is just pagans in the woods like there's no supernatural element it's just fucked up people um, living their little cult life in the woods. Hey, pagans are not fucked up. These people in Sweden are. Um, yes. So it is a creepy, gorgeous, weird movie. It's the first thing I've seen Florence Pugh in, and she's really good. Man, she's great in it. She's such such a good performer. Mm-hmm. Um, it definitely makes me want to see Little Women and, and other stuff she's doing. Um, she's great. So, yeah, it is. it's streaming now on Amazon Prime Video. It is a hard R, definitely in the back half. Oh, jeepers. So, oh, God. Not even going to say it, but I have images in my head. Um, So, it is crazy. But if you like Terratitari, or if you're looking for a very, like, gorgeous, like, Kubrick-inspired, formal, big, sweeping horror with just, like, beautiful images, but is also like compelling and scary and great performances and really cool story. I would check out Midsummer. It's it's really cool. That's my hell yeah. That's 
That's a really sick hell yeah. It's a cool movie. Hereditary was good too. <sighs> I like we some weird shit sometimes. Such different tastes. We have such. See, this is what I find hilarious. You get all like wacky about, this the other day, about yeah. me, mm-hmm. like liking, like listening to gruesome murders, and then mm-hmm. you watch this shit, this crazy fucking shit that came out of somebody's mind, right? And they were like, oh, "I should make this into a movie." No, right. you should seek help and take a lot of drugs. But like, you'll listen to a true crime story. Like, I'll come in, you'll be listening to MFM, and it'll be talking about the lady who got her arms cut off, and like the stumps were full of dirt and leaves. I'm like, this is well, that was to stop the bleeding. Horrible to listen to, and you're like, "No, nah, she's a survivor." And I'm like. This is not the kind of shit I want to listen to, but I will watch. But a, I'll watch it on TV. I will watch a fictional narrative that is that is imparting some kind of like story or emotion. But like sometimes I just can't handle the real stuff. That's really interesting. It is. You were very different. You know what? Well, yeah. I mean, that's very interesting. Yeah, so. um, my hell yeah is completely different. <laughs> Yeah, it would have to be. I mean, holy shit. Um, <laughs> Don't ever watch that. You should not. Don't even. I read the. Well, how could you even have read what happens in it? Because I just listen. That must have been upsetting, too. It was very upsetting. And Jeez. I don't. I did. I literally. I, I dissociated. I don't remember it. Yeah. Um, <sighs> okay. So my hell yeah is um, McMillions, mm-hmm. um, which is the documentary produced by none other than Marky Mark. Of the Funky Bunch, uh, Mark Wahlberg. He's taking time out of his busy pants dropping schedule. Oh, <laughs> nice callback. He okay. So this movie is about the white collar crime. So no murders or anything. Yeah. Um, but the white collar crime of it's a what? T- how many part documentary did I say? Ten. Six part. Six. You said six. Six. Oh, hours. Okay. No, it's ten for the outsider. Sorry. Yeah. Which you should also be watching. Oh my God, no. I have two just, hell yes. Okay, just keep going. Okay, so I have two hell yes. Okay, so you need to watch it. It's about the Monopoly game. For those of you who remember the Monopoly game at uh, McDonald's, apparently it was rigged and the fucking... I don't want to give it away, so I'm not going to do what we normally do like when we talk about yeah. movies because it's one of those where when you find out certain things, you literally just gasp. Like he, yeah, Daniel and I were like, bah! but the one, the star, if you ask me... Mm-hmm is this special agent from the FBI. And I guarantee they met this guy and they were like, okay, we have a movie. Because all we have to have is this guy and his fabulous laugh and smile and the fact that he is so just irreverent and hilarious and not what you would imagine a special agent from the FBI to be. Um, Doug... Matthews. Matthews. I don't know why I always forget last names. Doug Matthews. Doug Matthews, if you're out there, we love you. You need a TV show, and man. And you need your own TV show like Joe Kenda or something. Like, seriously, for real, you're awesome. When you retire or whatever, you need to be on podcasts and do all stuff. And I also need to listen to the McMillions podcast, and I will do that, and I'll report back. But my other hell yeah is my new crush, my new love, um, Cynthia Erivo, who I believe was robbed of the Oscar for um, best song because no one had any fucking clue that the movie Harriet was even out. I'm going to speak for me and Daniel, who usually knows when anything is coming out. Didn't even know it was a movie. She plays Harriet Tubman. She is, I've, I literally just came across her in The Outsider. Daniel knew, no, did you have to look up? She, look yeah uh, the first thing i saw was the outsider as well okay so she's in the outsider she's amazing i didn't know anything about her i was like oh this actress okay 
fine. Then someone's like, oh, you need to see her singing at the Oscars. And I'm like, what? Uh Huh? So apparently she was in a, she was nominated for best actress for Harriet. And then she was nominated for the song that she wrote for Harriet. And she almost egotted that night because she's won an Emmy. She's won Tonys. She's won Grammys. She's this five foot one Brit high, like she's like 33 or something. Make it even better for me. She's got a voice like a fucking angel. Oh my God. If you want to just die, go on Spotify or wherever you get your music and listen to her performance of God Only Knows with John Legend, and you're welcome, because it is absolutely incredible. Mm -hmm. And it's what I probably need to listen to right now, because I'm still trying not to cry about uh, that poor man. But Cynthia Erivo and McMillions are my hell yeahs, and I love them both, and I want you to embrace them both, because I think you will love them. Yeah, good call. I can't stress enough the McMillions thing is so crazy, because, I mean... The Monopoly game ran from, like, late 80s to, like, 01. So, like, I mean, I grew up seeing... It was just part of pop culture. It was just yep. always around, like, since yep. I was a little kid. And they were like, hey, remember that thing that existed for two decades and was just, like, always kind of in the background of your existence? It was turned... It turns out it was, like, rigged and crooked, and there's a bizarre story behind it. Oh, my God. But, like, it's just... You will love it. You and will it's, laugh your Not ass only is it crazy, off. but, like, it's just such a bizarre thing for them, for them to be like, remember that thing? That was actually all a lie. You're like, what the hell? And also, I'm going to say this. And again, I'm not giving anything away because you really need to see it. It's Mm -hmm. because the the surprises are worth being surprised. Daniel, I can't figure out how they got some of these people to be interviewed. Like, that's that's all I'm going to say. But we're like, how the fuck? Okay. Um, Please watch that. Please watch it. it. It's on HBO. And also watch The Thin Blue Line. And listen, I am not trying to denigrate cops some of the listen we have uh signs in our front yard for the incredible joe dana for sheriff like there are amazing men and women out there who are who uh save lives every day and we are incredibly grateful for them and they're just like in any other job there Mm -hmm. are very very bad men and women out there who are doing very bad things and we will not hesitate to call them out and the thin blue line did call them out and Mm -hmm. i'm very glad that they did but let's we are not you know we're not like fuck the pigs like that's not no and i I think i think they've gotten better over time all the organizations have i mean that's the thing like there would be a better grounds for that if this movie come out and they have like just doubled down yes but like the court was like, nah, we we uh, we're overturning that, and then the DA was like, the DA was like, I'm not getting back into this. No, yeah, you know? yeah. He's like, we can't win. We know yeah. we're gonna lose because we did the wrong thing. Yeah. So this is a little bit longer podcast. Uh, you're welcome. You're welcome. <laughs> no, but we went a little long this time, and that's just because this was a special. I think a special movie that really needed oh, to be. Yeah. Well, we had the movie and the aftermath and all sorts of needed stuff. Needed to be dug into. Yeah, it was a and, tongue going And on. since we missed y'all last week, mm-hmm. uh, we wanted to give you a little bit extra this week. Um, and uh, like I said, this coming week we'll have a bit of a palate cleanse. Mm -hmm. nothing is nothing as silly as well we'll have a palate cleanser is it the cheerleader movie from (laughs) oh my god if i can find it it will be what was it called like swinging cheerleaders swinging cheerleaders (laughs) that's what's so great like like it's not like errol morris just shows a picture of like the driving schedule and says they went to this movie he sets up a reenactment from both movies of two guys in a car watching swinging cheerleaders for a while no no it was two movies yeah two movies it goes 
for several minutes, you're like, I'm seeing a lot of the Swingin' Cheerleaders movie here Singing tonight. Singing some boobies. Yeah, so uh, props to him for the authenticity. And let's go watch Swingin' Cheerleaders. Okay. Well, it was great mm-hmm. talking to you guys. And uh, hope you have a wonderful week. Mm-hmm. And we will see you next time. Bye, everybody. Bye. Shots ring out in a barroom night Into Betty Valentine